the CEO of my current firm, I had met at a conference back in grad school on environmental nanotechnology. And we had pseudo kept in touch over the years. So I had reached out to him and I said, hey, I want to learn more about the business side of science. You have a consulting firm. Can I pick your brain? Can I meet some of your staff? And he said, sure, come on up. So I went to Seattle and it turned into a job interview and here I am. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today, let's see if I can get her credentials up here. She's her PhD in aquatic analytical chemistry. She's a staff scientist at an environmental toxicology consulting firm. And that's a mouthful. She's a former pro mountain biker, which we're definitely going to get into. Uh, welcome to the show today, Ann Galleon. Hey, how's it going? Going pretty well. Thanks for adjusting with me. We had we had troubles this morning with uh, <laughs> timing and video and connection issues, and um, but we got rescheduled, and now we get to see your your face uh, here on the video for anybody watching on YouTube. Yes, we are here in uh, overcast Seattle on my <laughs> end, overcast and rainy as per usual this time of year. See, I haven't been to Seattle or London, but I just assume that they're both the same, just dreary all the time, and everybody is sullen. Uh, the summers are amazing. Okay. But come late fall, yeah, it's pretty dark, pretty dreary most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys get pretty winters, or is it just No, it's miserable? just dark and dreary all winter. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's like, well, we're waiting for the snow. Like, we got, well, we got snow in the middle of October, which was like, what's that? We're in Kansas City. And um, it was like, it snowed like the day before Halloween. We're like, oh, this winter's going to be rough if it's already snowing. So we get, we get, you know, snow and it's pretty, it is, it can be frigid, but at least we get that like first snowfall and you're like, oh, everything's still beautiful. And then the misery sets in afterwards after you have that kind of like nice moment. Eh, we might get snow once. Maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's mostly just mud season. Yeah. But I mean, so is that, are you still outside on like riding trails in that weather or are you like, I'm packing it up for the season? Yes. So we ride year round and I also commute year round even in the dark and the rain. So okay. just, you just have to get outside. Like when I first moved here, my husband grew up in this area, so he's kind of used to it. And he said, you just, you just go, like you put on the right gear and you go, or you spend the entire winter inside. So you just do it. Do you feel like you deal with like a seasonal affective disorder or anything if you don't get out? Uh, maybe it doesn't bother me so much. Like I kind of like the dark. And so when you're riding in the woods and it's super dark and um, you've got clear lenses on, but that still seems like <laughs> too little light. Okay. Um, it's it's a good time. Mud season is fun season. So are you out by yourself most of the time, or are you actually like meeting up with people to ride the trails? Uh, trail riding usually in groups. Uh, okay. Commuting solo. Right, right. It, so I, I'm gonna, we're gonna go down a rabbit hole. We'll probably go down plenty of these. This is how <laughs> I kind of do things. But um, commuting, I'm assuming you mean you're on a bike of yeah. some sort. Commute. Okay. How do 
this is one thing I'm curious about since I have the advantage of working from home. I don't have to deal with this. Um, but do you like bring a change of clothes or a shower at the office? Like, how do you how do you deal with that? I assume that you probably work up at least a little bit of a sweat getting to work. Yeah, so my commute is on the longer side. It's about 50 minutes in the morning and just over an hour on the way home. Okay. I typically go to the gym first, so I ride from home to the gym, mm-hmm. do my workout. I can shower at the gym, right? and then I ride from the gym to work, which is only about 15 minutes. Okay. So that's kind of how it goes. But I do carry usually way too much stuff. <laughs> like I put a backpack on, I got my gym shoes, my gym clothes. I also have lots of changes of clothes at work, just in case I forget something, because that could be super awkward. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's tricky, especially this time of year, because you'll have these giant temperature swings. So mm-hmm. it might be 35 on my way to work and raining, and then on the way home it's 55 and dry. So I've got to carry like two different sets of clothes <laughs> for each ride. It's kind of a it's kind of a guessing game. I spend a lot of time thinking about what I should wear on my commute for maximum comfort, and I usually get it wrong, but you just have to keep trying. <laughs> I mean, you're in Seattle. I feel like you should be able to find somebody to be to be like, all right, I need you to program, I, like, set up a program for me, and we're going to put in the parameters for everything, for, for weather, for temperature, for whether it's getting, you know, it's cold and getting warmer, warm and getting colder, all this kind of stuff. And then all you have to do is just, like, pull up your program, and it'll say – this is what you need today, so you don't have to think about it anymore. I have started keeping track of different temperatures and conditions because the humidity swings a lot. So that's, mm. you know, you might get real sweaty one day, even though it's raining, and then vice versa. It might be frigid and dry, and uh, so it's it's a lot of guessing. You do your best. Yeah. <laughs> sitting on a bus or sitting in traffic. Right. Well, it's like I know I, I did this um, – YouTube video, I have a different series talking about uh, endurance, like running, basically, um, long distance running. And, and uh, I was kind of answering your question about, you know, what do you wear for different temperatures and kind of gave my guidelines. But at the same time, like I did the video, but at the same time, I know I'm like, yeah, but it, it depends. Is it is it getting warmer? Is it getting cooler? Is it yeah. windy? Is it not windy? Are you doing this kind of like, there's so, so many extra right. parameters on top of even just the nonsense of trying to lay out that. It's like, that's what I'm saying. You need a programmer to help you out, like to to put all these crazy parameters in, and and so you can free up brain space to do other things. Yeah, usually it's just me bouncing ideas off my husband and him rolling his eyes and saying, "You're gonna be like, it's gonna be wrong no matter what you come up with." So just pick something and go. <laughs> <laughs> he at this point he's not just like you know you know what you wear just just pick it out like it's okay. <laughs> We're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, your job sounds like it's pretty interesting. So I kind of want to jump into that. What what are you doing? What 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 does the company do? Um, are you saving us from like a radioactive future or or, you know, what's the deal? So as a toxicology consulting firm, more generally, we do public health consulting. So okay. that involves any time people come in contact with chemicals. That's in your food and drink, your air, it's your clothes, uh-huh. your personal care products, uh, any products that you use. So it's a pretty wide range of things that we kind of, uh, or areas that we play in. Some of our larger clients tend to be in aerospace and aviation. We do a lot of cabin air issues. 
Okay. Um, you know, we'll help with sometimes litigation support in the case of workers' comp. You know, maybe a maintenance worker gets exposed to chemicals on the job. Uh, we do a lot of product due diligence. So okay. if you've ever heard of Proposition 65 in California, mm -hmm. that's where uh, products have to have a, a warning label if they fall into a certain category of chemical. Right. So we help companies kind of navigate that regulatory space. And, you know, sometimes we go the other way and we go more on the chemistry side and we look at extractables and leachables. So maybe packaging material, is that leaching something into a food product? Um, it's that every day is different, which is super fun. And it's also nice not to be in a, an academic research environment. Like you do that a lot when you're getting your PhD. Right. But it was nice to kind of shift gears and focus more on some real world problem solving. So that's what I really, what I like about this kind of stuff. With um, Prop 65, and I, I haven't done a whole lot of that. I, I've done a little bit of like um, testing for like CPSC regulatory requirements um, for some children's products I've done. Um, but I haven't dealt with the, the Prop 65 stuff. I know when I've seen products like that, that sometimes I'm like, it seems like a like an overreach almost. Um, I'm just like, well, I, you know, it's a, it's a warning that basically says that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that there may be materials or ingredients in a particular product that have known or maybe linked to cancer. It's cancer or reproductive toxicants. Okay, okay. So carcinogens or reproductive toxicants. And, you know, the lock is changes uh, every once in a while and, and the reporting requirements right. can change. I know recently they passed um, an update where the sticker now has to at least list a chemical. So if there are carcinogens in the product, it has to list one of the carcinogens. If okay. they're reproductive toxicants, they have to list one. Um, whereas before it just had to say, this product contains a chemical. So that's okay. a new update. Uh, a lot of the Proposition, 60, Proposition 65 regulatory confusion comes in with companies asking, do I need a sticker or not? My product does contain a chemical that's on the list. However, if it's not an exposure risk to someone, mm -hmm. then that's uh, that's a different question that needs to be answered. Okay. So as an example, say you have an electrical product with a wire inside and the wire inside has lead. Uh -huh. Well, is anyone going to be ripping the product apart and chewing on the lead wire? Right. Probably not. So it may not pose an exposure risk. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of help companies navigate that. Yeah, it kind of sounds like it's a matter of, obviously it's more complicated than this, especially when you get large numbers of people involved in terms of like that we have a population and you can't account for all variables, but it, it almost is a matter of, to me, common sense. Like, like with the example you make, you have something that's basically encapsulated that is not intended for the end user to ever come in contact with let alone ingest or inhale. So, you know, it, does it need to be labeled? I would argue no, but I'm not a lawmaker, nor in, in regulation. Um, I just try to <laughs> follow the regulations when necessary. Uh, the regulatory phrase you're looking for is 
reasonable expectation of average use. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what we make all our decisions based on. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, how do you get there? And then I, I maybe you should explain what your PhD is in because I don't know that I've ever heard of aquatic analytical chemistry. Um, this sounds pretty specialized. So how do you get there and then from the, your PhD to where you are now? So the reason it's not very recognizable is because I kind of made it up. Okay. So there's that. That's fair. Uh, so I did my undergrad in chemistry and was interested in analytical chemistry. I had done some research already and some nanosensor work. Okay. But I wanted to shift focus a little bit more on environmental. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, the environmental sciences program, and I created my own degree uh, blending my chemistry background and this aquatic science. And I had originally gone to grad school with these really lofty goals of coming up with a new way to treat water with silver nanoparticles and everyone in the nanoparticle EHS, so the environmental health and safety community that I talked to looked at me and was like, well, we don't even know what happens to the ones we unintentionally put into the environment. You're not going to be able to put them in intentionally. That's fair. So I had to take a big <laughs> step back uh, and ha figured out a way to do research in that space, uh, but answer a different research question. So mm -hmm. I ended up doing a project where I looked at ways, uh, analytical methods for the detection and characterization of silver nanoparticles in natural water systems. So how do you take like a sample of lake water that may or may not contain silver nanoparticles that are pollutants, mm -hmm run it through analytical instruments and actually find out if, you know, how many silver nanoparticles there are, what form are they in, are they um, dissolving into ionic silver, are they clumped up, what size are they? So that those were kind of the questions that I was going for. But at UNC, no one, no one had that experience and a lot of the instruments that I thought that I needed weren't available. So I created a collaborative team at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Maryland, which is a government research lab. And I pitched the idea to them and I said, I want to work on this project. Do you have instruments that I think could be helpful? And they said, come on up. So I actually moved to Maryland at my second year in grad school, okay. still going to UNC, living in Maryland and doing all of my research at NIST, which was super fun. And so finished that, ended up doing a postdoc the chemical engineering department at the Colorado School of Mines. And there I looked at nanobiosensors, where we could put these sensors inside of a growing bacterial biofilm, and okay. like watch metabolic changes. Super fun. They basically would light up under different <laughs> concentrations of whatever our target was. And after that, I started looking outside of academia. Academic research, I was a little burned out on it. And I was really interested in the business side of science. So I started tapping my network. I started cold emailing people on LinkedIn. I, I started, you know, asking everyone I knew, what do you do and why do you do it? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? And um, the CEO of my current firm, I had met at a conference back in grad school on environmental nanotechnology. And we had pseudo kept in touch over the years. So I had reached out to him and I said, hey, I want to learn more about the business side of science. You have a consulting firm. Can I pick your brain? Can I meet some of your staff? 
And he said, sure, come on up. So I went to Seattle and it turned into a job interview and here I am. Once you got there, he was like, why don't you just sit down? Like, yeah, that was, that's pretty much pretty how much, it went. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cool because it's a very interdisciplinary mm-hmm. firm. It's very small. We only have about 10 people. Mm-hmm. But it's very interdisciplinary. We have, you know, backgrounds in microbiome research, in marine science, in, um, you know, a lot of toxicologists. We have a mathematician on board. We've got me as a chemist. So it's cool because we get to solve a lot of interdisciplinary problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very collaborative. I, I'm i always a big fan. Like, anytime I, I talk to, obviously, academics fairly often, and I'm always interested in, like, okay, how do we take what you're doing and then apply it? So but that's just my that's just my bend. That's like, a very good question. <laughs> Academic well, research is a different mindset to like practical applied science most of the time. You know, right. every once in a while you get like a bombshell project that's you can send it through tech transfer and all of a sudden you have a new company. But in general, academic research is just you're going down the rabbit hole on something. You want to find out why and how. It may or may not have practical implications, at least maybe not for 30 years, but right. you're, you got a different mindset with academic research. Well, yeah, I, the way I kind of view academic research is almost like we're, we're, I don't want to say, it'll take almost like a shotgun approach to solving problems where it's like, just solve as many, like find as much knowledge as you possibly can. And then maybe somebody will come across the research that's been done and apply it to something that we didn't know it necessarily applied to, later on and like like you know don't worry about the specifics of of what this may be useful for just find out what's actually happening and hope for the best yes that's pretty accurate yeah and that works for a lot of people a lot of people really like going down those rabbit holes and yeah figuring out how and why and poking at it mm-hmm. uh not me <laughs> um i like the the faster burn type projects you know i like solving a problem achieving it and moving on like to me that's a lot more satisfying so the consulting world really fit for me right well you you can actually see an impact where you're like okay this is what we did this is the resolution we solved the problem client is happy or or whatever the case may be and then there's actually a resolution for you when you've completed the project versus like even if in the academic sense you know, getting a paper pl- published or presenting that paper. Okay, you do that. That is your denouement, but okay, now what? Yeah, it's one small step forward. Yeah. Uh, the Operating in a consulting firm, though, is very challenging for those of us who came from academia because we have to change that mindset. You know, we're used to going down the rabbit hole. We're used to spending a lot of time and a lot of effort answering questions that may or may not be relevant to the problem at hand. Right. When you're consulting or operating in any sort of client situation, you have a limited time and you have limited budget and you have to answer the question that the client wants. So it really focuses you in on your work and you know, that's, that's a big mindset shift. So it took a little, that was a learning curve to kind of get used to that. Yeah. Well, yeah, anytime you spend enough time in a certain environment, whether it's the environment you grew up in um, or, you know, an academic environment, whatever it is, when you're insulated and have this kind of 
almost mantra repeated over and over and over. This is how we do things. Yeah. Anytime you have to shift your paradigm, it's it's a matter of like almost beating that paradigm down <laughs> with a new paradigm. Like, no, this is the new way. And it keeps cropping up over and over and over until it, it becomes more and more quiet. Although I have, um, I'll say the inkling that it doesn't ever really go away entirely. It's still there somewhere like just hanging around waiting to bother you uh, <laughs> and you have to beat it down again. I mean, it's good. It helps you keep an open mind about things and, you know, perspective is always good. And it sounds very similar to something you might find in a sports mm-hmm. training. What happens if you are doing one discipline and decide you want to train for something else? Right. Same sort of thing. You've got to retrain your body or retrain your brain. Yeah. Um, before we move on to your sports <laughs> endeavor, I do I do want to ask, so I, I, since you are an a, a environmental toxicolo- toxicology consulting firm, um, obviously there's a lot of, Prop 65 is a good example, um, concern about, you know, being more environmental, everything being green, all these kind of things, both from a public health standpoint and also uh, a commercial standpoint, just because I, I think consumer conscience is changing on a wider scale and, and now there's a demand um, to force that product, you know, products forward so that they are more green. Um, I was thinking about, as you mentioned, the research you originally wanted to do and um, the people you talked to basically said, yeah, we can't do that. Um, how do you figure out, so so in the case of like larger more important potentially um ecological impacting things products um how do you figure those things out how 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 do you like do a study to try to figure out the impact of something like that do you are you with me i think so so like Uh, so like so like say say you were going you got the, the green light to do your study like how do you put that together and actually collect the data if it has such a wide-ranging impact? Because it seemed like they said no because we don't know all the things that might happen. How would you go try, go about trying to figure out all the interactions that happen downstream from what you enter into a system? Sure. I mean, it all comes down to models. You can create, like, models of a wastewater treatment plant or a mini-mock environment, and you can sort of test it that way. Okay. Um, the environmental fate and transport question, though, is the big is the big one. So right. take titanium dioxide nanoparticles, for example. It's in all your sunscreens. Anything mm-hmm. that looks white has titanium dioxide nanoparticles in it. It's in your sunscreen. You take a shower. It washes off into the, into the water system. Wastewater treatment plants are not designed to deal with metal nanoparticles, so we think they go through, uh, but we don't know. Right. And so it's... It's up in the air. A lot of people are doing research on this. A lot of government, you know, they were working on it at NIST. That a lot of academics are working on it. Um, but the general consensus so far is that it's not as big of a problem as other things that are in our environment right now, and okay. so it's getting squashed. And I think that's why it's taking a while to to in- explore those questions. It's kind of like it's kind of like um, the room I'm in is on fire, 
So I'm not really concerned about the room next to me at the moment. Yeah. I need to take care of what's going on right next to me. Yeah, basically. Okay. Um, and it's also a really challenging problem. It's really complex. So mm -hmm. you've got, so you've got a nanoparticle. How do you, how do you, how can you tell whether it's a titanium dioxide nanoparticle or one that's you know made of dirt or natural products that are supposed to be there? Right. Like size can't differentiate that. Um, high tech instruments can, but how can you be sure that you're capturing that in a sample that you take? Right. There's a lot of questions that no one has answered yet with, <laughs> in that field. It's ongoing for sure. Right, right. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of the, this is a, a another rabbit hole, but this kind of the, the beauty of like your line of thinking in um, the sense of designing your own PhD program is that you need that idea of, I'm not gonna do this particular track. Like there's this other thing that hasn't been studied yet and you, you know, as a species, we collectively take that idea and as academics collect research, hopefully we gather enough data to kind of get a better idea of how to move forward with whatever particular problem. Yeah, and I think data scientists are going to be the ones that are breaking some of these stalemates mm -hmm. in research in the future. Because data scientists could come in and look at all of the research that's being done, all the experimental research that's being done in this area, crunch the numbers down, create models, uh, and sort of look at the problem that way, which is arguably a safe situation. You're not putting something into the environment that could potentially be a problem. Right. So, you know, computers are going to solve a lot of our problems going forward for sure. Yeah. Funny enough, I actually just spoke with a, a data scientist a couple episodes ago. Uh, he's in cybersecurity risk, and he, but although he's worked on like, um, I think his... PhD research was in uh, brain machine interfaces with like prosthetics and there's a lot of cool stuff going on there. Anyway, the, the point I'm trying to get to is he had mentioned that like data science wasn't even a thing when he started, which to me is like, it, it almost seems natural. Like how is that, how is it in that new of field? I mean, I understand computers aren't that old, but at the same time, they've been around long enough. I'm like, why is this like a brand new field? Shouldn't we have had it before? Anyway, it was just kind of a, a passing thought as I was speaking with him. It wasn't. Like when I started undergrad, you know, there were computer science classes that you could take. Right. But it wasn't It wasn't really that encouraged. It wasn't a big deal. No one looked at it and said, this is the future. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely popped up in the last decade. Yeah. So... Tell me a, a little bit about um, mountain biking. You're the first, I like to say, former pro, um, <laughs> even though you're still dabbling by your own admission, um, mountain biker I've spoken to. The, I, I don't have a whole lot of exposure to mountain bike culture. Um, the, the exposure I've had was basically been a high school teacher of mine, uh, raced and did well in his age group. Um, <laughs> and then my coach kind of does a little bit, and then he does – basically every bicycle discipline in at various points in the year. Um, but I don't know a whole lot about it. So, so how did you get into it? Tell me about, you know, what, why are you guys out there? What, like what's going on in the, in the mountain bike scene? Yeah. So I had a, a unique pathway in mountain biking. Um, I actually started downhill racing first. Okay. <laughs> so most people do not start with downhill racing. They start with cross country or whatnot and then move into downhill racing. Well, I just went straight for downhill racing. 
I had studied abroad in New Zealand. I had met some mountain bikers. I decided it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. So I was going to do it. That was it. So I moved back to the States, bought a mountain bike off Craigslist and just started teaching myself to ride downhill. By the end of the first year I was racing, uh, like the local series, I was still on the East coast. So mm -hmm. in West Virginia. Um, yeah. So I would taught myself to ride downhill, race downhill for about six years, uh, nationally, primarily. But I was going to school at the time, so it was pretty limited in the amount of travel I could do. Mm -hmm. So I stuck with national events, mostly East Coast events too, but uh, got a couple injuries along the way, recovered from that, decided that I wanted to try a different discipline of mountain biking. Downhill, downhill is difficult uh, to commercialize. It's difficult to televise. So. Okay. Of all the disciplines of mountain biking, that one probably has the least amount of sponsorship and funding available for okay. riders, especially women. There were, there were situations and races where like I was racing by myself. So, um, so I jumped over to a discipline called Enduro in about 2015 and been doing that ever since. Enduro is much more popular because you're riding trail bikes. Okay. So more people buy trail bikes than downhill bikes. Downhill bikes are so specific to only downhill. You do not pedal them uphill. It, it mm. just doesn't work. So trail bikes. And uh, so I've been racing enduro since about 2015. And that's when I got into like the factory race teams. Mm -hmm. And I raced uh, national series, a couple international series that were in the States. Again, I was still going to school and or in my postdoc. So somewhat limited in the amount of travel opportunities that I had. But uh, mountain biking is all about just getting outside in the elements, mm -hmm. right? And going really fast and scaring yourself most of the time. <laughs> so anytime that <laughs> anytime I can do that, I'm pretty happy, whether it's at a race or just on my local trails. But especially here in the PNW, we ride all year, like in the mud. Doesn't really matter the conditions. Other places like where I was in Colorado, you can't ride if it's wet. So, you know, each region has its own type of mountain biking culture and own type of uh, um, uh, trail systems. So, so how how does the how do they make it commercially viable? I know triathlon has this problem where it's like it gets televised, but the swim is very difficult to watch in a triathlon. Um, you can't tell who anybody is pretty much unless you've got a camera like right on people's faces because you got their head only pops out to breathe every you know <laughs> a few seconds. And then if it's not a drafting event, the bike is like, okay, we've got a guy or a, a lady sitting on a bike. By themselves. Frame. Right. <laughs> so it's like it, it, has, it has troubles being larger commercially viable unlike you know things like um nfl or or kind of more mainstream sports so how does that work with with mountain biking like it it's doesn't have tough. does it have you know televised covers is it on espn 8 like no no it is not so there's a couple ways that it goes about uh downhill and cross country have um a world cup race circuit Okay. And that is covered by Red Bull. And Red Bull does live coverage of both those events 
downhill's trickier because you you kind of set up it's like it's like downhill skiing but in the trees so it's hard to see oh. and so they'll set up a couple cameras along a track and you get like little snippets of the race um and people are only going one at a time so eh, you know there's a niche audience for that right enduro is actually the most difficult to cover by television but some of the most popular because the bikes are what everyone buys uh, so companies really like pumping money into it, okay. but you can't really watch it. Enduro races are sometimes, you know, 40 miles long, mm -hmm. multiple timed stages with untimed uphill transfers in between, and they're way in the backcountry most of the time. So wow. it's really hard to get any type of film crew out there. Uh, and a lot of times the order shuffles, so you never know who's racing at what time. Okay. However, uh, these events are primarily driven by stills, like still photography. Okay. And a lot of the coverage that comes out are either small snippets of video or photo epics. And so a lot of online mountain bike media sites, you know, that those are the two types of coverage that they do. Cross-country mountain biking, however, is an Olympic sport. So cross-country gets a lot of attention. It gets a lot of you know, television time, and it gets a lot of sponsorship and advertiser dollars. Cross country is a closed loop, and okay. they have tried to create courses that are very spectator friendly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a smaller loop. Maybe they do it more times, uh, and it, it's really exciting because it's head to head racing. Right. So, cross country is easy to televise. It's fun and exciting to watch, and you can watch in person too, and mm -hmm. actually see the whole track. So. That's kind of the gamut. Um, as you're speaking, I like lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping track of everything. Um, so, so why not do? Did you just physically did did your talents lend you to being more, I guess, fit or a, a good personality fit with doing enduro versus doing? cross country or or right. was there so um well i started in downhill i'm kind of an adrenaline junkie and okay. i'm a bit of a meathead so i like lifting i'm kind of affectionately been told i've built like a brick shit house so i'm kind of okay. like more on the beefy side and uh stronger than most and so downhill made a lot of sense i only had to go downhill i didn't right. have to ride uphill right. um it was just sprints you know raw power so that worked for me i switched to enduro and i had to completely retrain myself to be more fitness oriented i had to learn endurance and um that was a super big challenge that was not easy for me mm -hmm. um i much preferred deadlifting really heavy than doing base miles so that was that was a shift but enduro uh enduro races especially the higher end ones they're racing down on similar tracks to what downhill racers race on. Okay. So the technical ability is still very high. Cross country, uh, they're, those tracks are getting more and more technical as the years go on. So to be fair, they are incredible bike handlers. But that level of fitness is not, is not for me. You are basically blowing yourself up at red line for an hour and a half straight. Like that is a special kind of fitness there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's never been something that on my radar. 
I also just really like the downhill speed. You know, uh-huh. cross country, you've got some ups and downs, but for me, enduro and downhill, um, and honestly, enduro, the downhills are much longer. Okay. So I'm kind of bouncing around, but like downhill, your your downhill, your your race course might be five minutes. It might be two minutes. Mm-hmm. Enduro, you might have a 20 minute stage. So I just like going downhill really fast as long as possible. So downhill is pretty fun in that regard. And the fact that the uphill transfers are untimed, eh, I can make my way back up. Okay. Um, I will say though, now that I commute, my fitness is very different than it used to be. That's mm-hmm. like forced base miles, just commuting every day. So that's cool. I was, I was thinking as we were like got dot talking, you were talking about essentially we'll, we'll round it off an hour each direction. Yeah. Like, well, you're doing that on top of anything else that you might be doing. So you're like, you're just getting in a bunch of Base long, miles. slow miles <laughs> that like forced. So you're going to have some fitness, even if you're not doing anything else. Yes. You, you start, you start like couch potato fitness. Right. So I also have uh, vocal cord dysfunction. Okay. And that's been kind of a new revelation. I used to just think I couldn't breathe and assumed I was less fit than um, everyone else. But vocal cord dysfunction has kind of required me to take unique approaches to endurance events. Okay. Um, I've had to kind of learn to navigate around that. Eh. So going all out for a minute, uh, for an hour and a half, like cross country is just not for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody's got their own challenges. Like I, I, I finally figured out it was, it's like allergy related, but I have like essentially year round allergies. So I have like post nasal drip and it affects my breathing. Yeah. So I've got a, like anytime I have a, an event coming up where it's very important that I can breathe the whole time. Um, I have to like start taking allergy medication a couple weeks ahead, make sure I'm good mm. to go. It's it definitely, it was like a joke in college. Cause I'd be like hacking this stuff up all the time. <laughs> And every once in a while, we'd be on a long run. I accidentally spit on one of the guys, and they were good humored about it. They'd always say, "No, it's good luck if you get if Jesse spits on you," because um, I was usually near the front, so they're like, "It's going to give you speed." Uh, but I, I, I can certainly like sympathize with having like a unique. Um, it's not really a disability, but you know, like physical limiter like that. Yeah, uh, it's made me. I've had to realize that I'm very diesel powered. Mm-hmm. So we can use a car analogy, right? Diesel powered yeah. versus electric powered. So the electric powered folks can like leave a parking lot and just like climb a mountain. No problem. Like mm-hmm. they just jump right into it. Me, it takes me like an hour of warming up, <laughs> of slow warm up, and then I feel awesome. But I have to get through the first hour of feeling pretty awful first. So, yeah. but I can go longer in the end. It just takes me a little bit longer to get to that point where I feel pretty good. Right. And that's just figuring out like your own particular talents yeah yeah as you're talking about um going downhill and kind of liking those challenges i I think i read something about um, one of the articles that my sister sent me about you um embracing fear and i was thinking about i kind of have this rule it's not necessarily an everyday thing anymore but it's kind of rule about if something if you're afraid of something then you have to do it because you can't continue to be afraid of things forever so i'm kind of curious about your thoughts on I guess embracing fear or how that, how maybe those skills of dealing with that in racing translates, if it does, over for you in, in everyday, everyday life. 
Yeah, so I have a similar little fear rule, but I, I want to do something that scares me once a week. Like, that's kind of my my baseline. And mm -hmm. I actually tell that a lot to people, like, in my coaching clinics and stuff. Um, fear in mountain biking is pretty real, right? I mean, you're going really fast. Mm -hmm. You're hitting very technical obstacles, and there's an inherent risk involved mm -hmm. with it. So... Yeah, fear is very real, and fear actually, I mean, fear is going to help you mitigate the risk. You're going to make smart decisions. <laughs> you need to listen right. to your brain. Hopefully. So fear is good, but you can use it. You can actually harness it. It helps you focus. It helps you kind of uh, get some tunnel vision and really be mindful and present at the situation at hand. So I, I like having that fear in my brain when I'm riding because it just makes sure that I'm paying attention. So, uh, but I think embracing fear is important and we can use fear and intimidation, I think, interchangeably in this sort of context. Okay. There's a lot of things that may intimidate you because you are afraid of the consequences, right? Like you're, right. you're afraid someone's going to be upset or you're afraid that, you know, you won't get a big client or there, there's a fear of something that causes you to become intimidated. And so I think learning to embrace that and overcome it and actually use it as an asset makes any sort of environment where you might be afraid or intimidated in your day-to-day -day life seem a lot more manageable. You know, like I might be afraid to go speak in front of a big room, uh, on, you know, at a technical conference. And then I think, wait a second, I rode down a glacier in France a couple of years ago, and that was really scary. Nothing yeah. here is that scary. You know, like it helps give you a little bit perspective mm -hmm. and say like, you know, I was afraid then and I did it and I'm afraid now and I can do this. Um, I think it really just, it helps you get through those types of situations a lot better. I think I've almost even, if I remember right, and I don't know who to attribute this to, but I, I remember somebody talking about fear in the context of anytime you're afraid of something you you have to deal with that or confront that because you know if you're afraid of it that it's important to you in one way or another you know if you if it wasn't important to you that like uh, essentially the consequences of that situation then you wouldn't be afraid of it because sure. you pay it no mind mm -hmm. so it's like Fear is almost this like indicator that something's important to you and you should pay attention to it rather than kind of cower away from it. Well, it has control over you at that point. Right. Like if you're too afraid to do it or it, it makes you shy away from an opportunity or a task or a trail, I mean, it, it had control over you. And that's yeah. no fun. Right. You mentioned earlier um, kind of throughout the years of training you've had injuries. Have you ever had any... I guess acute injuries from crashes or anything like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fair number of you know the usual broken bones. Yeah, mostly broken bones. Um, I've been pretty lucky, knock on wood. Uh, wrists, fingers. Um, I did a, they call it a skier's thumb. Okay. But I did it on my mountain bike handlebars. Like I, I went over the bars and my thumb got caught. Mm. Tore all ligaments in my thumb, so okay. get that reconstructed. Oh, most of my injuries, honestly, were from sports long before mountain biking. I've done okay. lots of other sports too. So, um, like, I tore my ACL at twelve doing gymnastics. <laughs> <laughs> but 
So it's, it's like old tat. It just reminded me of a conversation I had with um, pro triathlete Cecilia Davis Hayes. I think this is back in like episode five. So very early on in the show. And um, so I actually broke my collarbone in a bike crash in a race uh, last year. Seems so. Well, it seems like very, very long ago, but also recent. So I can't, it's hard to put the timing. Um, and I know like I had trepidation getting back on the bike and feeling comfortable at speed downhill. And um, she went through a, a more traumatic event where like, I just broke my collarbone. She had like, she like, she was racing um, crits professionally and got in a crash, like broke her pelvis and multiple other bones. And she also kind of went through that. So because you've gone through that, I, I curious, like, did you, when you're getting back on the bike, when you're going downhill again, do you have to kind of, I'll say fight the demons back yes. after that injury? You Absolutely. Know? We call it having a monkey on your shoulder. Yeah. Um, and you can have a monkey on your shoulder for one individual technical feature, or you can have a monkey on your shoulder, period. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's very real. That's a very real, real feeling coming back from injury. And honestly, I don't know anyone who doesn't have that. Yeah. Um, and I was actually recent, I was recently talking to a woman in one of my clinics about this very thing. She had injured herself the year prior. She was feeling very timid and just sort of, you know, lost a lot of her confidence. She wasn't willing to try some stuff in the clinic. And she said that she told me she was embarrassed. She was embarrassed that she was afraid and and so timid. And Mm. that was kind of a red flag for me because this happens to everyone. And I told her that and she had no idea. Like she had no idea that everyone feels that monkey on their shoulder when they came back. She thought Mm -hmm. she was the only one. So everyone feels that. And it just comes down to patience. You know, you just have to have patience. Mm -hmm. You have the skills to do these things. You've done them before. They're scary now, but you've done them before. So Mm -hmm. you, you know you have the skills to do them. It just comes down to patience in building up your confidence. So usually what happens is you take a step back and you do some easier stuff. You know, like if I if I get hurt on a 40-foot gap, then as soon as I come back, I'm not hitting 40-foot gaps right away. I'm going right. back and doing 20-foot gaps until I feel really dialed. And then I'll bump up to 30, and then maybe I'll try 40 again. So it's usually just taking a step back and being super patient and working your way back up to that level. Um, but, yeah, it happens to everyone. And it takes longer than you like <laughs> right and that's always the thing where it's like i want to be i want to be back at it now but there's still that that you know that fear in the back of my mind that 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 gnawing sensation where it's like uh maybe you shouldn't do that or uh that's not yeah so the danger of trying to push through it too fast and i've i've seen people who try to just jump right back in they're like i've got this monkey on my shoulder but i'm just gonna ignore it the danger of that is most of the time in mountain biking at least you get hurt because you hesitate. Right. Right? You hit your brakes after you've already committed to a feature. Or, um, you know, you try to avoid something at the last minute. Hesitating is usually what causes most of the problems. So if you're trying to push through and ignore the monkey on your shoulder, you have you have a pretty high chance of, of pan- panic breaking at the last second. Yeah. And maybe causing another problem. Yeah. So that patient workup... <laughs> after taking a step back is is really key see and that's funny enough that's almost exactly 
not the, necessarily the same verbiage, but almost exactly the same thing Cecilia said, where it's like, you know, we're on the road, you're on the trail, but we're both on bikes, or yeah. all three of us are on bikes. And it's a matter of like, you know, I, I get fear about going 40 miles an hour downhill, you know, on, on you got tiny tires on a road bike or triathlon bike. And uh, gravel was the situation with me. I was going around a turn and nobody touched me. It was just gravel in the wrong place mm-hmm. and just bike just came out from under me. So that's not even, then there's that fear of like, do I hit gravel wrong um, or sand or anything like that? But yeah, she mentioned um, because of that fear, yeah, you get, you know, more in your own head and then you start breaking downhill when you probably shouldn't be. And then, you, you know, you can fishtail a bike and then it can come out from under you and make things worse because you're, you know, going at it too hard too soon. So it's just kind of interesting to see you guys both say essentially the same thing from that experience. So that gravel situation is really important because I think this time when you're working back from a monkey on your shoulder is the perfect time to work on your basic skills mm-hmm. because one, you've already had to take a step back and you right. have to kind of slow down a little bit and be patient. So, and two, you're trying to build confidence back up again. Well, the right. best way to build confidence is to build your skills. And so that's the best time to do it. If you're scared about riding gravel, take a skills clinic for mountain bikes and learn how to skid and learn how to fishtail a bike on gravel and be okay. Mm. Um, I find myself doing stuff like that on my commuter bike all the time. I might slide through something and think, oh, well, if I didn't have my mountain bike skills, that could have ended badly. Mm-hmm. So um, this is a perfect time to work on bike handling or, or whatever type of skill because um, that really helps with your confidence building on the, during that process. Yeah, I, I, I've basically taken it as – I say gravel. It was, it was more like sand. So what happened with me in particular is we were going around a blind corner. Again, we're on the road. Um, a, a guy came on the inside of me during the turn when he really shouldn't have to pass, which forced me out yeah. where there's, you know, sand on the this side of the road and I just didn't see it. So the bike was out from under me, even with those, like in my particular case, even with better handling skills, I don't think there's anything I could have done. It happened like that quick. Like I was sliding on the road before I realized what happened. There are always freak accidents, right? Yeah. Always freak accidents. But in terms of building your confidence, it can just really help build it back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quickly. Right. I'm with you. And I know there are times when I've taken a corner and ended up off the road, on the, gra- <laughs> on the gravel. I'm, like, bike is not supposed to be off the road, but I'm somehow riding on the grass or riding on gravel on a triathlon bike when I really shouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure those skills, along with the confidence, are do have a lot of practicality as well. Yeah. See, then you just bunny hop back onto the road and you're all good. <laughs> right. I, I think I get more afraid of popping a tire in especially these last couple of years, just with a series of mechanicals in it. Uh, this, cause those tires are so thin. It's just so easy to pop a tire do, and then there's, there's nothing you did. It's just yeah. days over because you popped a tire. Do you try athlete? Do, uh, triathletes run tubeless? Um, I do. Yeah. But not always. It just mm. depends on the person's setup. Yeah. But yeah, my setup is the, for the particular race wheels I have, that's what fits that I can't use. Um, I can't use the other, I for losing the name, but yeah, I can't use a tube tire on the, my particular race wheels. 
We always carry um, those tire plugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you're racing and you get like a puncture, you can pop a tire plug in and be back racing before uh, you don't have to like quit halfway through. Is it and easy for you to identify them? I've done it. Say what? Can you see where the puncture is? It's like with when if I puncture a tire, it'll it'll take me a good five minutes, if not longer, to find where the puncture even is. Well, if it's big enough to flat a tubeless tire, it's going to be pretty big. Okay. Um, because a sealant will seal anything smaller. Okay. So if it's big enough to flat a tubeless tire, you should have an, an actual. Well, I guess I should say I, I'm running. Uh, I'm running tubulars, not tubeless. Got it. So I should clarify that is that it doesn't have the three types of tires. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm running tubulars. I'm not running tubeless. My, yeah. I think I could run tubeless on my rims, um, but I I don't have it set up that way currently. Yeah, I don't. I know nothing about that kind of racing. I yeah. I run. T- to bliss on my computer bike um and i mean i've been running a plug for like 200 miles and it's still holding strong nice <laughs> so those tire plugs are awesome i'll have to look into that and maybe maybe upgrading my my uh, wheel set that may we'll see we'll see how things go <laughs> um as we're running out of time here I, I asked this question of everybody because it's kind of universal i like to ask um if you so after, say, a hard workout, hard race, something like that, if you can only choose one food for recovery for the rest of your life, what do you choose? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, ice cream, that's the obvious answer here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I don't tell my coach I said that. Um, that's okay, but a lot of people, I, a lot of people say things, things, ice cream, pizza, beer. You'll do well with me anytime you're in Kansas City. Just, just look me. I, I recently got into making like uh, small batch craft ice cream. So if you're in Kansas City, oh, just wow. send, send me an email. <laughs> but okay, let's let's give the official okay. answer for the coach. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm really boring when it comes to food. Like I eat the same thing almost all the time. Um, so protein pancakes. It's hard to go wrong with protein pancakes. Okay. okay. I mean, that's pretty much my go-to for every meal all the time, if possible. <laughs> my husband would be appalled. He's the chef in our family. So he, when he's home, he, like, cooks these nice meals. When he travels half the year, I'm living on protein pancakes and oatmeal. So, yeah. You do what works. Um, and if people want to see what you're up to um, as you're dabbling and racing nowadays, um, uh, can they find you anywhere, Instagram, blog, anything like that? Yeah, Instagram is my my go-to. It's just my name at Ann Gallion. Okay. Good you put down here. And thanks for coming on to chat with me today. Thanks. Always a good time. <laughs>